0: This is TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting Systems Network and Administration Podcast. My name is Wes, and I'm glad to be joined once again by Jim. Welcome to the show, Jim. Hi, everybody. Now, since the last episode, you and I have actually had a chance to meet. We we both went to Linux Fest Northwest. It was a ton of fun. And while honestly, I didn't get quite as much time to hang out with you as I would have liked, in that time that we did have, a number of interesting topics came up. So I thought today's episode could be us expanding on that. Sweet. We can talk about WireGuard. Exactly. So one of the highlights of Linux Fest Northwest was The Jupiter Broadcasting track. We had our own track, our own room, tons of Jupiter Broadcasting people there, packed rooms, as I'm sure you experienced. I know because, well, all right, let's be honest to your audience. I wanted to go to Jim's talks because, one, Jim's great. Two, I want to show support. And three, your talks were on WireGuard and ZFS, which are obviously two things I'm very interested in. Unfortunately, by the time I got there, the rooms were already packed. So I think it was a huge success. I didn't get to go, and I'm sure many audience members didn't, so maybe we can dive a little bit more into WireGuard. Now, we have talked about it before on this show, in fact, with you, but that was over six months ago, and it was before you were a proper host on this show. You were good enough to, get to come on as a guest host, give us some of your insights, but honestly, that was early in the WireGuard story, and a lot has changed. Yeah,
1: uh, it it was pretty early, and a lot has changed. Um, it, when we uh, when we started talking about it, I was enthusiastic about WireGuard, but it was uh, still a little early in my own adoption process. Um, at this point, I have completely gotten rid of OpenVPN for my own infrastructure and replaced it with nothing but WireGuard. And I've written a little bit of tooling to uh, you know automate onboarding uh, new systems and new clients onto my WireGuard
0: mesh infrastructure. And uh, you know, I had some time to see how that all plays out. When we first talked about this in episode 390, well that was that was November 22nd, 2018, and and people were just getting started adopting it. And the, and one of the nice properties about WireGuard, it's super simple, right? Like you're basically defining some some connections between various hosts. What that left to the user though, was all of the complicated management of a complex multiple machine environment. So I think that's one of the main stories we should talk about that's developed in the past six months.
1: So basically one of the more complex things setting up WireGuard, or at least different from what we're used to is if you've got a lot of machines you wanna connect together, um, it can get a little bit more challenging because uh, establishing a WireGuard VPN tunnel is a lot like establishing an SSH connection. If you've ever done that and set up passwordless authentication with keys, uh, WireGuard is extremely similar to that. Um, you've got relatively—you've got you know a relatively short key pair, and you push the public side of that on either side with a little bit of configs, and you know then you get going. But also like the SSH sessions, it's a single tunnel. Uh, there's not. By default, you're not going to have like an entire subnet available. And if you want to figure out how to connect a bunch of machines and have them addressable between one another, then that's the thing that you need to work out
0: on your own. Right. Just like SSH, when you have one, five, ten machines, it's not a big deal. But when you're managing whole clusters or several data centers, suddenly just the organizational overhead on there, you're going to need some tools and support maybe a personal project I've been working on illustrates some of this difficulty. Um, so Jim, are, are you familiar with the, the Tink VPN to the extent that I know what it
1: is? That's uh, you know, that is one of a fairly long list of VPN ish type projects that I was like, Oh, that looks cool. I should play with that someday. And yeah, never really did.
0: It, it, it's basically a, a neat, but honestly a, a bit slow, fully meshed VPN system. Um, so you can set it up on nodes and it, it it establishes an overlay network that you can then, you know, subnet and address however you like. And then you've got um, a mesh VPN set up where you can talk to any other node on the network. The nice thing about it is that it will intelligently route if there's, you know, like failures within that, that network. And you may not get that with, with WireGuard, but it's a separate user space thing I have to install. It doesn't get anywhere close to line rate. So... I've been working on replacing that setup with WireGuard. The nice part about Tink is once you got all the keys exchanged, it did the rest. With WireGuard, there's a lot more left to the user. I'm kind of interested to to hear you say that,
1: Wes. Uh, So what are some of the challenges that you've seen trying to figure out with WireGuard specifically?
0: I had to establish a mental graph of what my network looked like. And with Tink as long as they could all communicate together, you know, th- there's there's obviously the, the usual NAT, ICE sort of um, busting that you need to do. But once you got through that, Tink would establish mutual connections to each other. Now, each server needed to have, you know, the, the keys for the other servers it was g- going to communicate with, of course. But beyond that, the network te- topology would be automatically configured. And with WireGuard, it felt a lot more like, um, like an IPsec star sort of configuration, uh, where, where I, I really had to think about each of the links in the chain, and I don't think that was a bad thing, but it was definitely a little bit more involved.
1: Yeah, your topology is generally going to be pretty simple with WireGuard. Um, you know, although again, technically everything is peer-to-peer, and there is no such thing as a server. Uh, in practice, if you you know if you want to connect ten or twenty machines together, you're usually going to have a simple hub topology. You'll have one peer that all of the individual. Uh, You know, I hate this. Technically, you say peer-to-peer, but I'm just going to go ahead and make the call. If you have one machine that's a hub for 20 other machines to talk to one another and you need that, you know, one in the middle, I'm just going to go ahead and say that's a server. So, um, yeah, it's going to be a simple uh, star or, uh, you know, hub-based topology where all of your clients, you know, out in the periphery talk to this one central client. And when one of your peers out on the edge, wants to talk to another one out on the edge, it it all has to go through that hub in the center. So, uh, you know, I think one of the things that throws a lot of people about WireGuard when they're, you know, coming into it from IPSec VPNs or OpenVPN or what have you, is that since everything is a tunnel, you can set things up in terms of a subnet, sort of, kind of, but you have to realize that it's actually not really. You have a tunnel to your one server machine that is capable of reaching all the other machines. Even if they're on the same subnet, there's there's no network address. There's no broadcast address. And when you don't have a network and a broadcast address, that means you can't do DHCP. So everything is going to need to be statically configured in terms of
0: the uh, IP address configuration, and you need to work that part out for yourself. Right. Unlike things like OpenVPN, this is, this is a layer three connection only. So just, it just suddenly you've got this new layer three extension on your network. You've got to think about like, how, how does routing and NAT work on that?
1: Yeah, That's a good point, Wes. Um, It is layer three only. There is no layer two. And you can confirm that for yourself on any machine that you've got a WireGuard interface up and running. If you do an IF config or, you know, an IP show on that interface, you'll see the MAC address is listed as all zeros all the way across. And that tells you for sure we are not looking at a layer two network here. The the flags for IF config
0: actually show WG zero up point to point running and no ARP. Yeah, we're, we don't we don't need any ARP here. It's 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 2019 and we've got ourselves a very nice layer 3 VPN. Now, one of the things that that struck me in the past 6 months, obviously WireGuard was kind of first targeted at Linux. Um, now, we haven't seen it make it upstream yet, but that has not stopped a proliferation of official and unofficial client implementations. So, well, 6 months or 10 months ago you could compile a wireguard module yourself and, and run it on your linux box now you can install an ipad app yep you can
1: install an app on uh, your ios device or your mac or a freebsd machine or even a windows machine now although that last one is still uh you know jason describes it as pre alpha and it 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 works pretty well in uh, my limited testing but i will say that uh it is definitely still alpha quality.
0: I imagine some of that is because, well, the WireGuard project took off a lot in that implementation because if anyone who's used a lot of, you know, OpenVPN on Windows can tell you, the existing sort of um, what one would call a ton driver on Linux infrastructure on the Windows side, at least for open source projects, wasn't exactly great. And the WireGuard project didn't want to rely on that sort of shaky infrastructure. So they've been working on implementing... A new architecture on Windows, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, what you're referring to with OpenVPN was the Open Tap interface, and it is a terrible, buggy mess. Um, I can't tell you how much time I've spent, you know, disabling those interfaces, re-enabling those interfaces, deleting them, uh, installing new ones. And, uh, you know, hilariously, one of the things that they screw up on the absolute most is for whatever reason, they'll just lock up and not actually get, uh, you know, an address over DHCP. So the very thing that some people are complaining about not having in WireGuard, you know, the DHCP client, it's kind of like, well, it didn't work right in our other VPN options anyway. So I can't really say I miss it.
0: Very well put, you know, actually behind the scenes. We have a few WireGuard connections set up in the studio and the mixer, the Linux powered mixer we have has has actually has an an app you can use to connect to it. So when we're remote and broadcasting live, we just fire up our WireGuard VPN and then we've got an interface that can control all the live production of the show. And it's, it's just been rock solid, whether that's on a tablet or a desktop Linux machine.
1: Yeah, it really has been nice. I've been using WireGuard, uh, you know, quite a lot since I, f- I first started playing with it. I got it running on uh, my tablet pretty quickly, and uh, I replaced OpenVPN with it, and uh, it's it's just been a joy. Um, you know, I used to really think about when I wanted to start the OpenVPN client on my phone or my tablet because uh, it was a significant power drain. Um, the you know the speed part wasn't usually a problem. You know, over Wi-Fi anyway, whatever it was fine. But, um, man, the power drain was significant. I would go from having, you know, about a day and a half of battery with the usual mixture of, you know, apps and browser and games and just whatever that you do on a phone or a tablet, you know, down to, I mean, I'd, I'd be scraping by for battery by 1 or 2 p.m., and with the WireGuard client up and running, I just don't ever deactivate anymore. WireGuard is just always on, on my tablet. I don't notice any speed slowdowns, and uh, I don't have, you know, any battery complaints at all. I, I can't really say I notice a difference from
0: running naked. That's amazing. I feel at this point, we, we, we've been talking some, some high praise for WireGuard so far. There is one thing that I still find disappointing, and, and we touched on it a bit already. WireGuard is not yet in the Linux kernel. What's going on, Jim? Like we've seen some, you know, we've seen Linus Torvalds express his own compliments towards Wire, WireGuard. Many different people have adopted it because it is simple and state of the art. Why don't we have it in a modern Linux kernel yet? Oh, we don't have it. You know,
1: we don't have it in mainline in the Linux kernel yet because it's a it's a long process getting. You know, a new project adopted into the kernel. Unless you remember the butter project, it turns out the Linux kernel developers are extremely picky about you know how your code is written and uh, exactly how well it integrates
0: and how reliable it's going to be. They are acutely aware that once it's merged, it's basically going to be supported forever. Now, of course, legacy subsystems do get dropped from time to time, but most of them hang around. It, it pays to get it right. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, Jim, but... I believe some of the hang up is because while WireGuard appears as a very simple, you know, it it just reuses a lot of the existing sort of network interface structure in the kernel. It did also come with its own rather controversial crypto subsystem.
1: Yeah, it uses something called Zinc that wraps up a lot of its crypto functions. It was the right way to go. Jason didn't succumb to not invented here syndrome and decide to, you know, write his own right from the bare metal. Uh, applicable to nothing but his own project crypto routines, he incorporated uh, a more basic library called zinc. And a lot of the uh, a lot of the work that's been going on to get Wireguard ready for inclusion in the kernel is figuring out exactly where the code boundaries are between Wireguard and zinc and making sure that zinc itself is both ready to go in the kernel and will be available in all the ways that it needs to be you know, in order to be the much more available general purpose library that it really is and not just a crutch for WireGuard.
0: What that says to me is if if this is done right and it's all successful, not only will we get WireGuard in a future upstream kernel, but there will be a nice new layer of crypto APIs that other future kernel facilities can take advantage of. And really it's the same sort of simple interface, right? Where you don't have excess choice You just make the right decisions by default.
1: I don't know that I'm really qualified to tell you about, you know, what you can and can't do with Zinc and whether it's possible to use it wrongly. I don't know enough about that library to speak authoritatively on that. But I can say that, you know, getting the modular design right on something like that so that you maintain as as broad a degree of functionality as possible on a basic library rather than making it just something that's only applicable to this one project that's one of the things that's key to get right when you incorporate something in the kernel and it it's not easy it it takes work so Wes before we move on from WireGuard I do want to circle back around to the Windows client real quick because I know people have really been chomping at the bit for that for a while um There is a third party Windows client that has been available for a while. I don't recommend that one in part because it does rely on that open tap adapter, which I really just do not like the cut of that thing's jib. We talked a little bit earlier about how Jason was putting a lot of work into getting the modularity of the design right for implementation in the Linux kernel and drawing a clear boundary between Zinc itself, which exports a lot of cool crypto functions that can be used for a lot of basic things, and WireGuard, which is you know more of a complete project that is layered on top of Zinc. Well, he's taking that same kind of careful approach to the Windows client, which, again, is still, you know, in active development. It's in a pre-alpha state right now, but it is largely working. But the first thing that Jason needed to get right was a workable uh, network interface driver below that thing. We've already talked about how the OpenTap adapter is basically a, fam- a flaming pile of poo on Windows. And Jason had originally thought that he would work with Microsoft's existing VPN adapter that they use, you know, for their own IPsec interface. But what he found is that uh, I'm not super clear on the details, but he was really, really unhappy about that as well. So he built a project called Winton. First, and he had to get Winton right. Winton is a Layer 3 tunnel driver for Windows, and it does nothing but a very incredibly basic Layer 3 tunnel interface driver. It doesn't have all the configuration stuff or all of the crypto stuff or you know, all the things that make WireGuard WireGuard. It's just basically the world's simplest possible, super dumb, but because of that, rock-solid and easy-to-maintain Layer 3 tunnel driver. So that's good to know that, you know, we, we've got the same kind of careful design and that's part of why it's taken so long, you know, to get to where we are now with the WireGuard Windows project. And I can say that where we are now is pretty exciting. He finally publicly announced the client and you can download the alpha and install it directly. It's got signed drivers for Winton so that you get, uh, you know, no scare messages when you install that on Windows 8, Windows 10, Server 2012, Server 2016, even Server 2019. It just installs and goes and doesn't complain about driver signing or anything. Um, for the most part, getting it running was was pretty easy. Uh, I did discover a bug that the Windows client shares with the Android client, actually, which most people probably won't experience. But if you're like me and you set save config equals false on in your configs because you didn't want something overwriting your nice, careful commenting in your config file, uh, neither the Android client nor the Windows client understand that yet, and uh, they will fail. So you'll have to go in and edit that out. Beyond that, I just imported my tunnel uh, just like I would with you know any Linux machine, and it just worked. You get a pretty clean interface that just pops up right after you install the, the WireGuard package itself, and you import your tunnel into that, and it automatically activates, and you go. The other bug that I did discover relatively quickly, I thought, well, let's see what happens when I restart my Windows VM— and I think what happened is that on restart, WireGuard does try to automatically activate uh, any of the tunnels that you've got. And it looked like it tried to activate the tunnels before the network stack was completely up. So it just froze on activating forever. So I had to open up services, go through and find the individual WG0 tunnel service and uh, you know, just stop that. And then I could go back to the interface and it showed that it was deactivated and I could activate it again. And like always with WireGuard, then it just connects in about a tenth of a second and you're good to go. So it's pretty exciting stuff. I'm really looking forward to the project actually getting out of alpha. I feel like it's so close now I can taste it. I will say that I don't think anybody should be relying on the Windows client in production right now because you know I, it, it did not take long to find a couple of bugs, minor than they might have been, and Jason has specifically warned that the the internals of the Windows client aren't locked down and secure to his taste yet. So it's entirely possible, you know, if you've, if you've got an attacker on the same machine with you, they might be able to sniff pieces of the key, you know, out of memory in the system from another process. All that nasty stuff that's really hard to nail down and get exactly right. That stuff's not ready yet.
0: It really is an exciting time to be a WireGuard user. We'll have links to all the stuff Jim just talked about, including Winton in the show notes, techsnap.systems slash 403. We'll also have a few other things that I've seen pop up, including a, a couple different options, one of them actually by you, Jim, but we're seeing a whole field of WireGuard configuration tooling available. So you've got some scripts set up. I've also seen a online web-based GUI that, that you can use to sort of manage all your different WireGuard hosts. And there's even a WireGuard mesh network operator for Kubernetes. So there's a lot to look at. Head on over to Systems. You'll find links to everything. All right. Well, that's enough on layer three. Let's jump down a bit and talk about layer two. Well, I didn't make it to your WireGuard talk, Jim. I did stop by afterwards and I stumbled into a little bit of what I think is a, maybe a Jim Salter hot take. And and that's about VLANs. I, you know, when you start getting a little more advanced in network configurations, you think to yourself, oh, VLANs, this is neat. I can I can have these these separate secure layer two networks. Really, it's not quite that simple, is it? No, it's really not.
1: Um, th- this is actually one of my pet peeves and it's definitely a Jim Salter hot take. It's uh, frequently a very unpopular one because I crap on a lot of the way that a lot of admins set up their networks. You know, I see a lot of these Small business and, you know, even mid-market networks set up that are just, they're riddled with VLANs for no apparent reason. You know, you've got your servers on one VLAN over here, and you've got Windows machines on another VLAN there, and your Wi-Fi is maybe on another one. Um, I've, I've seen networks with up to 10 VLANs on them for no real apparent reason. And when you talk to the admin who set them up, the answer you get is always the same. Well, you know, I do this so that I have, you know, my separate networks of machines segregated from one another. And, you know, I I have to worry less about, you know, what one machine is doing talking to another machine because they're separated. They're on different VLANs. But every single time... What I see is that you know when you actually get down to the individual machines, what controls which machine is on which VLAN is not what port of the switch that they're plugged into. It's literally just the configs on the machine itself. Now, it's one thing to say, okay, so I've got VLAN 2 and I've got VLAN 99, and I have half the ports on my Switch locked down to VLAN 2, and the other half are locked down to VLAN 99. So at that point, if you just plug into a machine into the Switch and what port you've physically plugged it into determines what VLAN you're on, yes, that is a security feature,
0: and you've got segregation. Right. Basically, you're just relying on physical security then, right? You're assuming that people can't just be plugging in random machines to random ports because maybe it's at a controlled access facility.
1: Well, absolutely. But, you know, any good sysadmin knows once you've got physical access, game over, right? Exactly. But that's not what I see. I I can't say that I've ever actually seen a port locked VLAN config on a switch unless I personally configured it. Um, It's always just tons and tons of VLANs. The machines get to tag their own packets. And if that's what you've set up, you don't have any segregation. There is absolutely nothing stopping any pro- anybody from just saying, you know, I'm going to reconfigure my system to be on VLAN, whatever I want to, and touch whatever I want to directly. And if that's the case, well, at that point, you might as well have just had a bunch of different subnets all on the same VLAN because you don't really have any
0: more effective segregation. Right. Without security, you've just got not really segregated layer two networks. And, and maybe it would help to talk a little bit about some of the basics of, of VLANs or, or the intentions behind this. I liked what one of the audience members said. I, I think many times VLANs get set up because you just don't want to spend the money on a second switch. So so the thing about that is that that
1: can be a valid reason to use a VLAN. You say, well, you know, I need to have uh, I need to have two or three separate networks and they need to be isolated. But I've got 48 devices and I want to just have one big 48 port switch and not have, you know, a 24 port switch and a 16 and a couple of eights. That makes sense, but again, you know, unless you're actually locking these things down, where the tags are, you know, mandated at the switch level and not just something you arbitrarily get to do on every machine by itself, there's no
0: point. Do you have any advice for someone identifying a sane VLAN configuration? Do you have like a, a heuristic to identify? Do VLANs make sense in this environment, and and am I really gaining anything? In terms of security,
1: uh, you're almost never gaining anything. Unless the VLAN is actually enforced at the switch level, you haven't actually gained any segregation or isolation that means anything. Anybody can still set their machine to be on any VLAN they want to. And the
0: only person whose life you've made more difficult isn't an attacker. It's your own. That's a great point. Because if you contain your own packets, any machine that gets compromised on the network can choose its VLAN at will. Absolutely. And, you know,
1: you've bypassed any kind of concept of real security or isolation that you had because, of course, you don't have any firewall keeping these arbitrary machines from talking to your super secure VLAN that your servers are on. They're secure just because they're on a separate VLAN, right? Only, you know, now they're not. Anybody with their laptop can just be on the same server as your VLAN and hit them directly.
0: Okay, Jim, if I'm not using VLANs, how do I isolate different networks, right? Maybe maybe I have a staging environment and production and I really don't want the two to mix.
1: Well, so basically the way that you isolate them is the same whether you've got VLANs or not. Uh, ultimately, what you have to do is you have to make sure that you've got a firewall in between separate subnets, you know, one for your servers and uh, you know, one for your less trusted workstation type machines or... Whatever your boundary is and the reason that it's there, it boils down to you need to have these machines on separate subnets, and you need the only way for one group to be able to touch the other group is to go in between a router with firewall rules on it. Now, this is actually what you do whether you've got VLANs or not. Without VLANs, you need separate physical devices for this. You would have one small switch for your servers, one larger switch for your clients, and a router that sits in between the two and passes packets according to whatever firewall rules you've got set up. You do the same thing with VLANs, only there's only one switch. And it's possible to do it properly. To do it properly, you would have, you know, say you've got eight servers and you've got 40 workstations and they're on a 48 port switch. You have, you know, ports zero through seven locked down to VLAN 100 or whatever arbitrary number you want to use for your servers. And then the default VLAN is on, uh, you know, ports... 8 through 47 for your workstations. But in both cases, you know, the the VLAN that you're on is mandated by the switch at the hardware level, so you can't escape it. Now, underneath that, you're still doing the same thing. You still have a router in between the two subnets. You've got a firewall that does or does not allow packets from the individual subnets according to whatever security rules you have. The only difference is the VLAN didn't give you extra security. It just allowed you to do this all on one switch rather than having to have separate physical pieces of equipment. Now you can have one DHCP server that's running on your uh, your server subnet. Maybe that's running on a Windows server machine, or maybe you've got ISC DHCP server, or you know maybe it's running from the Switch itself. But you have a separate DHCP server, you've got separate subnets, you've got separate network and broadcast, the whole line on ports 0 through 7 and on ports 8 through 47 and they're effectively at this point completely separated but again the key there is you have to be enforcing that separation on the hardware level at the switch if you just allow any machine to tag its packets with any vlan it wants to you might as well just left them all on the same subnet to begin
0: with all right well that makes some good sense If, if we exclude isolation are there any other good reasons to use a vlan yes uh
1: basically because the QoS functionality on your router sucks. Um, There are a lot of routing devices out there, and PFSense is very much one of them, and you find PFSense everywhere in the real world. In theory, you can do QoS and traffic shaping just fine, you know, based on Layer 3 and IP addresses. You don't really need to do it at the Layer 2 level, but a lot of the actual routing devices out there that people are really using, again, including PFSense, They have really good facilities for doing QoS on everything that has a particular VLAN tag on it, but they're not so good at doing it on a layer three basis. So in the real world, you'll see a lot of perfectly sensible setups where you have, uh, you know, VoIP phones and computers that they're all on the same uh, actual physical network. They're sharing wires, but they're on separate VLANs. A lot of admins will get confused and they'll say that's to isolate them, but it's really not. The good thing that you're getting out of that is the ability to now quickly and easily say, okay, everything on VLAN 100, those are my VoIP phones. They should have the absolute highest priority, uh, you know, low latency going up to the internet and you slap that onto that VLAN tag and you're done.
0: That is a great example. And it does show, you know, it's a useful tool. There are things that can simplify or make cleaner in your network architecture, but it's not a one-stop solution for all of your networking problems. And like anything else you're setting up, you really need to think it through.
1: Yeah, you have to understand it. So as a sysadmin myself that you know inherits a lot of clients, um, I see a lot of what other people have done And, uh, you know, when it comes to virtualization, I see something very similar where it is really not uncommon at all for me to walk into a shop, a small business, and see one Windows server sitting in the corner running Hyper-V with one Windows server VM on it. And there's no snapshots. There's no replication. Uh, The virtualization doesn't help anything. But by God, they ticked that virtualization box. Nobody's going to accuse them of not being with it.
0: well we've got one more hot take for this episode and honestly it's something near and dear to my heart i think there's a bit of a cultural misunderstanding here and 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 sometimes a bit of misplaced shame what i'm talking about in plain terms is high availability and if you've if you've been in the admin game it's it's held up to the standard right we all want our services to be highly available with no downtime. But really, that's not possible. Or if it is, it requires serious trade-offs and consideration. And this is just one more area where you really need to understand what you're talking about and think through the rationale. And and Jim, I, I loved your approach on this because at the end of the day, it all comes down to how available do you need your service to be and how much downtime can you tolerate? And, you know, how much can you
1: how much can you actually spend and how much complexity can you actually properly maintain in trying to chase this this mythical five nines or, you know, a a one just nothing but a one. There's no nines. It's just a one. what everybody wants. So if you're not familiar with this game, the idea of five nines is, you know, point nine, 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 nine. Uh, meaning that your service is up 99.999% of the time. That means that you can only have downtime for a little under five minutes per year. And the big thing that you have to chase in order to achieve this kind of uptime to get high availability is you can't have any single point of failure. And the way that you typically approach that is you say, okay, so... I need super high availability. That means that I need to be able to bring things down for maintenance without bringing my service down. So I can't have any single point of failure. So what I do is I set up these two machines, either of which can do the job that I need them to do. And then I introduce a load balancer in between the two that will automatically pick the one that's still up. And so at the end of the day, what you've done is you've taken two machines that might go down thereby you know, being a single point of failure and you've introduced a single point of failure in front of them. That's
0: a great point. Now, there are configurations, right? You can have two load balancers that pass off and and communicate with each other. But we should underscore that not only does that usually cost hundreds of thousands of dollars, but it is a complicated, stateful mechanism being passed between those two, and it is not foolproof. No, it's not.
1: And, you know... Okay, great. So now you have two load balancers, either of which hopefully will work to connect to your service. But how do you choose which one of those you're going to connect through? Because at the end of the day, you're connecting from one computer that needs to just connect to one thing that needs to be up. So what bridges those two load balancers together to the single IP address that you're going to expect? Because if your device is going to connect to any of a number of IP addresses because you're using round robin DNS, well, now all of those have to work all
0: the time or you have downtime. No, to be clear, it's not that having a highly available service is bad. We all use and trust services that operate with considerable uptime. A great example is the traditional phone system, right? It's just not okay if you can't place a phone call, or at least it's a very irritating incident. But not all of us operate nationwide phone systems, and not all of us are Google. What process do you go through, Jim, as you're deciding, What's the right level of availability? You know, obviously you need, you need backups, you need disaster recovery. Maybe you need an active-passive setup or a truly highly available active-active system. Do you have any helpful tips to sort of decide what's right for you? Well, the biggest helpful tip
1: is, you know, you have to look at your entire application stack. And if the entire application stack wasn't designed for high availability, then the answer is no, you can't have it. You don't want it. And it's not going to work the way that you expect it to. Um, You know, the example that you came up with with the phone system. It's a great example of something that people expect to be up all the time. It's not a great example of a high availability system because it's not a traditional HA system. There's all kinds of single points of failure in the phone system. Uh, you know, you've got the last mile of wire that's going out to your house. You've got the device that it's plugged into. There's there's very little in terms of what HA really means going on in the phone system. What the phone system really is more than anything else is it's relatively simple and it's extremely reliable and willing. Understood, And it's managed by engineers who understand it very well and can plan for downtime and have downtime in ways that don't bring the entire
0: system down for everyone. There's two key takeaways from what you just said there, Jim, at least least for me. One is you have to plan for downtime because no matter how good you are, it's just going to happen and it's going to be a complicated mess you have to recover from. So the simpler your systems are, the better. The other one is reliability versus availability, and maybe you can expand there. So I think, you
1: know, maybe to talk about the difference between reliability and availability, we have to kind of pivot a little bit and go into, you know, one of the really important terms to understand when you're planning for a system that you can trust to be there when you need it and the key term here is mean time between failures and this is a term that i really like because you don't really need like a special it dictionary to figure out what it means it means exactly what it says on the label you know it's the the most common amount of time that goes in between the system working and it breaking and the thing that most people don't realize about high availability is that in the vast majority of implementations out there, your mean time between failures doesn't go down when you implement HA. It frequently goes up because you've introduced a lot more complexity than you had to begin with. Now, instead of a server designed to do a task, you've got multiple servers designed to do the same task, and you've got a complicated fencing algorithm that's supposed to figure out which one of them is up, which one of them is down, which one should be the master, which one should be the passive. You've also increased the severity of the possible failures you can have and how long it takes to recover from them. Um, a term that you might have to look up to understand some of these things is a split-brain scenario, but it's the first term I think you should understand if you're seriously thinking about H.A., It's fairly easy to explain. Basically, you say you've got two servers that are both capable of servicing the same requests. And the idea of your fencing and your load balancing is it decides which of these servers is up and which of them should I be sending these requests to. If one of them goes down, then your fencing algorithm is supposed to understand that and start routing everybody over to the server that's still up, which has now become the master. Now, the problem with this setup is it is incredibly likely that you'll have a failure where the fencing doesn't work right and you end up with half of your users actively using and writing new data to and deriving functionality out of one server that thinks it's the master. And the other half of your users are now doing the exact same thing with the second one. But both of those servers think that the other one is down and you know they're the only real kid in the room. This can take a while for users to figure out what's going on because everything appears to work fine. But eventually they notice, hey, I'm not seeing this data that I did yesterday. Or, you know, Bob on this side of the room isn't seeing the data that Alice put into the system on the other side of the room. And that's when they call ITN and you figure out, oh no, we've been operating for a day and a half with half of the office working on one system, half of the office on the other, and there's no good way forward now. I have to manually reconcile all of this data and and all of these conflicts in order to go forward, or I have to tell my users, sorry, but the last day and a half of productivity effectively didn't happen. You're gonna have to do it all over again, because that's the easiest way to
0: actually get all this stuff together in one place. The downside of, of you know, if, if HA works, if, if the system, if everything goes according to plan, well, th- that's great. The downside is you get way more complicated failure scenarios.
1: And all too frequently, those failures actually do happen more often just because the system is that much more complicated and it has that many more moving parts in it. You know, it's pretty similar to RAID. Uh, a lot of people think that, well, you know, I have I have RAID for my storage, you know, a redundant array of inexpensive disks, so I won't experience failures so frequently. That's actually not the way it works at all. You have failures considerably more frequently with RAID. The idea is that hopefully the failures won't hurt you when they happen. But if you've got an 8-base server with 8 disks in it, and you've got a striped RAID array running across all those 8 disks, you now have 8 times the number of possible failures that you can have you're hoping that none of those failures will bring the rest of the system down with it but in actual practice um, it's entirely possible for a disk in a real-world storage array to fail in a way that brings the whole thing down until you can pull the offending disk that's locking up the entire SATA or SAS bus you've also again you've introduced a new single point of failure now you have a raid controller of some kind in front of all these things and if that fails it's a single point of failure, and everything goes down with it. At the end of the day, you really can't get away from single points of failure. You can try to put a single point of failure that has a higher mean time between failures in front of more complex components in your system that are more likely to fail, and implement some kind of redundancy between them. But you really, really have to know what you're doing. Uh, you you can't just slap it all together and expect a good result.
0: Maybe we should take a step back for a second and just to find some terms, because there's a lot of them being thrown around. High availability, fault tolerance, and disaster recovery. Now, those all have sort of common sense definitions, but maybe you can expand a bit, Jim, and give us a clue as what those really mean in practice.
1: Actually, Wes, you know, instead of talking about high availability versus fault tolerance and disaster recovery, I want to take a step even further back. Let's stop with the IT mumbo jumbo for a second and use business mumbo jumbo instead. There are these terms that I find nowhere near enough sysadmins are familiar with, and they really should be because they really dive down to the heart of the matter. The two terms you should absolutely understand as a sysadmin so that you can talk to those pesky business types. To be fair, you may need to explain them to them as well, but it will strike to the heart of what they care about and what you should care about. Those terms are RPO and RTO. RPO is a recovery point objective, and RTO is recovery time objective. And what that boils down to is if you have a failure, your recovery point objective states how much data is, is it tolerable for me to lose if I have a system failure of some kind. Now, let's say that you've got a very old school, very traditional system where you have a tape backup that runs automatically every night and, you know, you've got a rotation of tapes that you ship in and out. Well, your recovery point objective for this system is going to be within 24 hours because you run that backup once every night, you know, probably at midnight. So the most amount of data you can lose, assuming everything's working fine in your backup system itself, is 23 hours, 59 minutes and 59 seconds. So now that we understand the recovery point objective, let's talk about recovery time objective. We're going to pick on our same old school, you know, small business with a tape backup that runs automatically every night. We're still going to assume that everything is running correctly on this. Um, your recovery time objective is going to be how long it takes you to actually get the data back onto your system, get everything configured and running again, and be able to get back to business as usual. And your recovery time objective frequently is even more sensitive than your recovery point objective. I can tell you I've encountered a lot of businesses that could tolerate losing a day worth of data or you know, even a week worth of data if they had to, and it wouldn't be the end of the world. But when you ask them to be down and not running at all for the same 24 hours as you had in your recovery point objective, now you've got a problem. They need to be able to get back to work. They need to be able to get back to work right now. So that's why your recovery time objective is important. Now, for my own systems, I target a really low time and point objective. I want to have less than an hour on both sides. And my recovery point objective in particular, you know, I want to be able to be back up within five or 10 minutes. That's why I do everything on VMs. That's why all my VMs are on ZFS. That's why I take snapshots. That's why I replicate them between machines. I want to know that no matter what happens, I can bring everything up from not too far back and I can do it immediately. Once you understand your actual RTO and RPO objectives, what you find is that in almost every circumstance, you can satisfy that and without injecting the kind of danger that comes along with high availability, where now you've injected this complexity into your process that can mangle your data even worse than if
0: it had never been there at all. I like how you've drawn the distinction between business terminology and IT terminology, because really, one is here to serve the other, right?
1: That's one thing that I think very few sysadmins get right. They don't understand that they're not there for the equipment, they're there for the business, they're there for the mission. And, you know, the, the whole IT world has been going super blazing hot for DevOps for years now. And it makes a lot of sense. You know, devs need to be able to talk to the operations side and vice versa. But the thing that nobody really talks about, and they ought to be, is biz ops. You know, all these folks on the system administration side, we need to be able to speak the language that the business people know. We need to talk about what it actually takes to keep the business rolling and make sure the business can do what it does, keep the money coming in, and keep our salaries paid.
0: That's right. At the end of the day, if the business doesn't keep going, well, it doesn't matter how good our systems are. No, it does not. Well, that's probably plenty of hot takes for this episode, but if you'd like to catch a little bit more of Jim, we've got some recordings of his talks at LinuxFest Northwest up on the Jupyter Broadcasting GitHub. Just head on over to four zero three to find that and all the other links for this show. If you're at all interested in Linux or security or anything in between, you might also like our upcoming security study group, Command Line Threat Hunting, with tony lambert this is a great little introduction into understanding the various threat vectors on a common linux system so if you've ever wondered to yourself how do i know if i'm infected and what do i do this is the study group for you it's taking place tuesday may 14th at 5 30 p.m pst if you'd like to register or find out more just head on over to meetup.com Jupiter broadcasting and finally, if you'd like just a little bit more, Jim, you should really check out his recent article over at ours, which is all about quantum key distribution. If you're not familiar, well, just go check it out anyway, because this is one of the best breakdowns and introductions to quantum computing and quantum cryptography I've seen in years. So great work, Jim, and audience, do check it out. Wes, all the
1: talks on the Jupiter broadcast channel were recorded at Langsfest, Northwest, weren't they? Including yours.
0: Absolutely. I had a talk about Lambda Calculus and another about Linux audio production. You can find all of that over at our GitHub. If you'd like to send us feedback, head on over to techsnap.system slash contact. Or you can find us both on Twitter. I'm at WestPane And Jim, you're at JRSSNet. Thank you all for joining us. And we'll
1: see you in a couple weeks.